Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about Stormy Weather, which is a 1943 uh, film produced and released by 20th Century Fox. It features a host of African American singers, dancers, musicians, and actors, and it stars Bill Bojangles Robinson, Lena Horne, and Dooley Wilson, who we previously saw in the movie Casablanca. Um, it was released at a time when there were few other opportunities for African-American performers in Hollywood. Um, and it takes its title from the 1933 song of the same title, which is performed near the end of the film. It's based on the life of its star, dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson, who plays a character named Bill Williamson, who is a gifted dancer who returns home after serving in World War I and tries to pursue a career as a performer. His path to success intersects with that of a talented singer named Selena Rogers, who's played by Lena Horne, who is the sister of a military buddy. Singing, dancing of all kinds, and romance ensue. I had never seen this before, and I it was just a delight to watch. Yeah. <laughs> not, not just to see these performers, I thought, was really cool. It's considered one of the best Hollywood musicals with a black cast. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came out at a time when black actors and singers almost never appeared in lead roles in mainstream Hollywood movies, especially musicals. Yeah. So you stole a few of my <laughs> trivia pieces. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> this should not be surprising to anyone with eyes, but when the film was made, Bill Robinson was 39 years older than Lena Horne. And yeah. I did keep thinking, wow, he looks really old. He looks like an old man, and he's supposed to be playing, like, a young, mm-hmm. like, military veteran and stuff. <laughs> um, this was the final film for two of the stars, so it was Bill Robinson's final film. He died of heart failure at age 71, uh, on November 25th, 1949. And it was also Fats Waller's mm-hmm. final film. And he died on December 15th, 1943, less than five months after the film opened. Mm-hmm. And he was only 39, and he died of pneumonia um, while he was on a train en route to New York from Los Angeles. Yeah, isn't that so, a horrible way to die? <laughs> yes, I just can't imagine... Like, being sick while you're traveling is the worst. Mm-hmm. And then doing, like, a cross-country train ride. I mean, I guess it was more glamorous then than it is now, but... uh Still. Yeah, still. Um, I hope that we will talk about the zoot suits when we get to fashion. But yes. um, one of the things I found was that Cab Calloway's zoot suit, even though this was a black-and-white film, was, like, bright yellow. It's So it's, like, even more garish i guess than, than you would even imagine and you can see it in some of the like promotional materials but i did not get that just from the black and white part critics at the time thought that lena horn and katherine dunham's performances of stormy weather were actually uh like a black modernist critique of american culture which in retrospect i could totally see and Fred Astaire told the Nicholas Brothers that the Jump and Jive dance sequence was the greatest movie musical number he had ever seen, which I agree with. Yeah, I read that trivia before before I saw that scene, and as it was happening, I was like, wait, what am I watching here? And then I remembered, oh, this is the thing that um, 
Fred Astaire said was the best, but it was just incredible. I mean, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> yeah, I I wrote they down watched. the exclamations I was making while this <laughs> scene was happening, and I wrote, "What? How is this even possible? I don't understand." I <laughs> know. I mean, you talk about like American or like an allegory for the American experience. I was thinking as they were walking up the like gigantic stairs, I was like, oh yeah, when you like see Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire dancing up the stairs, they're like normal sized stairs that like don't require like, I mean, they require some athletic ability, but like they're normal sized stairs. And here are these like freaking amazing African American actors or dancers who are, who have to like go over these gigantic hurdles <laughs> to get up the yes. stairs. And they, it, they, they had huge smiles on their faces and looked so at ease. And I know some of that is the stage persona. But I, I was just blown away by that. I'd seen clips from it before, but I'd never seen the whole dance sequence. Oh my! Yeah, we'll talk more about it. <laughs> um, so that's all I have for trivia. I did not find a lot. Yeah. But who did you bio? I bioed uh, Catherine Dunham, who I had not was not familiar with before watching this movie. So she was born uh, in on June 22nd, 1909 in Chicago. Uh, she grew up actually uh, outside of Chicago in Joliet, Illinois, where her father ran a dry cleaning business. Uh, at the age of 15, she organized um, a fundraising cabaret to raise money for the Methodist Church in Joliet, and that was where she gave her first public performance at the age of 15. Um, she had started taking um, dance classes before then, and, and while she was actually still a high school student, she opened her very first private dance school for younger black children. She started her studies at Joliet Junior College and then moved to Chicago to um, join her brother at the University of Chicago, where she decided to major in anthropology and study dan the dances of the African diaspora. <clears throat> she got a couple of uh, prestigious fellowships to conduct um, ethnographic studies of the dance forms of the Caribbean um, and spent um, the next almost year in, around the Caribbean and especially in Haiti. And when she came back to Chicago, she submitted a thesis that was meant to partially fulfill the requirements of a master's degree, but she didn't actually fulfill the master's degree because she was trying to choose between whether she wanted to become a full-time dancer or a, a full-time um, anthropologist, and she decided to become a full-time dancer. She had already, like, as I mentioned, she started taking dance lessons when she was really young, and then uh, while she was in college at U uh, UFC, she um, started studying ballet with, you know, and included, and then took some other lessons with um, a variety of other dancers, including someone who became the prima ballerina of the Chicago Opera. And she, in yeah. 1931, when she which was before she went to do her field work, she formed a group called the Ballet Negro, which was the, one of the first black ballet companies in the U.S. They performed one time in 1931 and then disbanded. Later, they would come back together. But just two years later, she opened, when she was still a student, she, I guess it would be her second dance school, because um, she opened one when she was still in school um, and this one was called the Negro Dance Group. Once she like had decided that she was done with academia and wanted to pursue dance full-time she revived uh, her dance group and they went to New York to take part in a Negro Dance Evening which was a 
a big African-American um, dance evening. And then based on that performance, she was chosen to be the dance director of the Chicago Negro Theater unit of the Federal Theater Project, which is pretty amazing. And her troupe um, traveled around the Midwest and then went to New York again in 1940 to appear in a Broadway production of Cabin in the Sky, which ran for 20 weeks, and then went to the West Coast and did a bunch of extended performances. She st stuck around in on the West Coast and um, appeared in a series of movies, including um, the Abbott and Costello comedy Pardon My Sarong, and then um, Stormy Weather in 1943. She moved back to New York City and opened opened the Catherine Dunham School of Dance and Theater near Times Square, which I think it makes makes that her third dance school that she opened. Um, she went back to Broadway with her um, dance troupe, and which then decided that they were going to travel Mexico and then <clears throat> tour around Europe, and then they ended up staying and working in Europe for almost 20 years, which was like an extended stay. And in the meantime... One of her dancers continued to manage the school in New York, which went on for another 10 years. Um, and that school inspired lots of other dance schools that were opened across the world that were all trained by um, Dunham and her. She had this particular style of dance that she and dance pedagogy that she trained everybody on. She also um, ended up training, in addition to like straight uh, dancers, she also trained um, a lot of people whose names um, people would recognize, like Eartha Kitt, James Dean, mm. uh, Gregory Peck, Sidney Poitier, Shirley MacLaine, Warren Beatty, they all, you know, learned how to, like, do choreography and be in their bodies, thanks to the Dunham technique that um, she developed that was based on traditional African dances. She eventually settled in East St. Louis, Illinois, and took up a post um, as artist-in-residence at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. And she, like, used that position to sort of go back to her anthropology roots and bring in, you know, all different kinds of researchers um, to create a liberal arts curriculum for the, like, the arts program at SIU. In 1965, uh, Lyndon Johnson nominated her to be a technical cultural advisor to the governor, government, sorry, to the government of Senegal, um, which was sort of a, <clears throat> like a, an ambassador role. And she then spent the rest of the 40 years of her life doing, a, she was deeply involved in a range of social justice activities, both in the U.S. and also in the Caribbean, and particularly in Haiti throughout a period of time when Haiti had a lot of uh, social and political upheaval of its own. So she was very deeply involved um, in all of those movements. And she died in her sleep um, on May 21st, 2016 in wow, New York City. Very recent. Yeah. And that's <laughs> the way everyone should go. She yes, sounded so brilliant and seemed really cool. Yeah, seemed like she had a long, full, busy life where she got to do have a lot of different things. Well, and how many people can you think of who are like, well, I really need to choose between a career as an anthropologist and a professional dancer because I'm just great at both of them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the world lucked out because, well, I guess she ended up using her anthropology stuff later in life so I'm surprised I had never heard of her and I even like took classes on dance history so I don't mm -hmm. know why that is but I'm glad I think to know that's more called structural her. racism Emily <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> yep I think you hit the nail on the head <laughs> 
Um, well, I buy a Lena <laughs> horn. Yay! It was tough to figure out like what to keep in because she did so many things. She was an actress, a singer, and a civil rights activist. So Lena Mary Calhoun Horn was born on June 30th, 1917 in Brooklyn, the daughter of a banker and an actress. And both of her parents had mixed heritage of African-American, European-American, and Native American descent. And her parents separated when she was three. And she spent part of her childhood living with her grandparents and part of it accompanying her mother on the road as she toured. At age 16, she dropped out of school and began performing at the famous Cotton Club in Harlem. And after making her Broadway debut in the 1934 production Dance With Your God, she joined Noble Sissel and his orchestra as a singer using the name Helena Horn. Then she appeared in a Broadway musical review, Lou Leslie's Blackbirds of 1939, and she joined a well-known white swing band, the Charlie Barnett Orchestra. And Barnett was one of the first band leaders to integrate his band, but because of the prejudices of the time... Uh, she wasn't able to like socialize at a lot of the venues where they performed, and so she s- soon dropped out of that orchestra. Mm. In 1941, she returned to New York to work at the Cafe Society Night Club, which was popular with both black and white artists and intellectuals. Um, a long run at the Savoy Plaza Hotel Night Club in 1943 gave her career a boost, and she was featured in Life magazine and became the highest paid black entertainer at the time. And she signed a seven-year contract with MGM Studios and moved to Hollywood, but she refused to be featured in roles where she would play a domestic worker, which was pretty much like the industry standard for African-American actors at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of made her stand out. And she appeared in Swing's Cheer in 1943 and Broadway Rhythm in 1944, And she was only in singing scenes by herself because they needed to make films where they could cut out the scenes featuring black actors for Southern audiences. And then she landed lead roles in the 1943 movies Cabin in the Sky and Stormy Weather, which were ensemble African-American casts. And her rendition of Stormy Weather became her signature song like for the rest of her life, and she performed it. For the rest of her life. Um, which, yeah, was amazing. <laughs> the movie. Uh, by the end of the 40s, she had sued restaurants and theaters for discrimination and become an outspoken, uh, outspoken member of the leftist group Progressive Citizens of America. And, of course, McCarthyism was sweeping through Hollywood at that time, and she was blacklisted. A lot of people think because she was good friends with actor Paul Robeson, who was also blacklisted. And she still performed in fancy nightclubs around the country as well as in Europe and made some TV appearances during that time. But then the ban eased by the mid-50s and she returned to the screen in the 1956 comedy Meet Me in Las Vegas. Horn remained active in the civil rights movement and she performed at rallies around the country on behalf of the NAACP and the National Council for Negro Women. And she participated in the 1963 March on Washington. She made her final film appearance in the 1978 movie The Wiz, which I did not know. (laughs) Um, It was directed by her son-in-law, Sidney Lernett. Um, And, you know, it's like a version of The Wizard of Oz that features an entirely African-American cast. 
uh-huh. including Michael Jackson and Diana Ross, and she played Glinda the Good Witch, mm. um, which I could see. In 1981, she returned to Broadway with her one-woman show, Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music, which won a Drama Desk Award, a Tony, and two Grammys for its soundtrack. And in 1994, she gave one of her last concerts at New York Supper Club. And that performance was recorded and released in 95 as an evening with Lena Horne live at the Supper Club and won a Grammy for Best uh, Jazz Vocal Album. So really, like, continuing to kill it, like, all throughout her life. And she died of heart failure on May 9th, 2010 in New York City. So I, the, I did not go into her personal life, but... There's, like, biographies of her, and it's it's easy to find more information. But there was so much good stuff. (laughs) Learn more about Lena Horne. Yeah, she seems like a total badass. Yeah, I think we bowed a couple of badasses. Yes, we did. Well, should we should we talk about the movie? Yes, let's talk about it. <laughs> um, what, what were your general impressions? One thing that I didn't mention, because I wasn't sure if you were going to mention it in your trivia, but this movie is 75 minute, minutes long and features 20 musical numbers, which means that it's basically like one musical number after another, which was breathtaking, mostly. It's like, oh, another song, another song, another song. Yeah. I mean, it's it felt to me like a showcase film. Mm-hmm. And that... The point, the plot was very thin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was like, what is even happening? But it didn't matter because the whole point was like, I'm getting to see the best performers of this generation in like yeah. rare footage of them. And the, the music was incredible. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really mind that there wasn't a lot of plot. At, at, at certain points, like things were resolved like in weird offhand comments of like two words. Yeah. But... I didn't really care because I was like, I just want to see Fats Waller, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a film meant to showcase a lot of musical talent and not necessarily any, like, acting talent. My favorite scene, well, it's hard to say, but I think the scene that I actually went back and rewatched it, like, multiple times, was the scene in the Memphis nightclub with, like, Fats Waller's band and, Mm -hmm. um... Mm-hmm. They sing um, That Ain't Right and mm-hmm. Ain't Misbehaving. And I was just like, I just want to hang out at this club all day, every day. Okay. <laughs> I am here for it. And I, I mean, I should say <laughs> that, like, I really love this kind of music. And I listen, I weirdly listen to a lot of, like, ragtime and blues from, like, <laughs> the 20s and 30s for, for fun. Like, literally, if you go on my Spotify, it's like, ragtime piano. Like, what is... <laughs> Uh, so seeing a lot of these performers, like, in this video footage was really cool for me. I said earlier that it was breathtaking. It was, I, I was like, oh god, this person is in this movie, and this person is in this movie, and then, you know, you know, then to realize that there were so many people like Catherine Dunham, who I didn't recognize, but I was like, well, if they're in this movie with, like you know, Cab Calloway, then, you know, I should know about them. And so it was like a, I don't know, it was like a, like a lovely introduction to like a whole group of performers that I wasn't aware of. And yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me is that a lot of the performers had this sort of like effervescence and like Mm -hmm. enthusiasm Mm -hmm. that I feel like is sort of out of style now Mm -hmm. like I feel like most like when you go to a live music performance people they're kind of acting like they don't care like that's sort of the Mm -hmm. energy that you get 
And the energy of the performers in this movie was like, we care a lot and we're not embarrassed to show it. And like, yeah. here we are being enthusiastic. And yeah. I love that. <laughs> yeah, they weren't just like putting on these like big smiley faces because that's what the act required. You could tell that they were really enjoying the work that they were doing and really feeling a lot of joy from it, which, you know, made it just that much more pleasurable to watch. Yeah. I I also really liked the scene on the boat with the Dixieland band where they did uh, the scat. Mm-hmm. Scatting, and then like Bill Rob- Robinson did the like sand mm-hmm. dance. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, the the version that I was watching of this movie for some reason the subtitles were on like automatically, and so it had subtitles for the scat. And that, <laughs> I was like, I want to turn this off, and then it's like, no, I don't want to turn this off. I want to see how you manage this. <laughs> Yeah, that was one of the things I thought was interesting watching this is that, you know, there was a lot of slang in the movie. Like, there is a scene where they, like, kind of talk and jive. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the first movies that we have watched where they use a lot of dialect, Mm -hmm. which I enjoyed and made it. I mean, like, contrast this with, like, Catherine Hepburn and their sort of, like, fake English accent, like, making mm-hmm. speeches and stuff. It just felt more realistic. Mm-hmm. So, min- minimal dialogue that there was. <laughs> it was still notable to me. The paragraph of dialogue there was in 75 minutes. <laughs> um, what did you think of the sort of framing of it with uh, Bill telling the neighborhood kids mm-hmm. about his life? I kind of... I actually wrote that I liked that it was this sort of retrospective. It sort of addressed the question of, there's no dialogue in this, because, like, the only thing you need to know, Uncle Bill will tell us. And then (laughs) we'll tell the children. That'll, like, that'll be the exposition, and then it will just be, like, straight music numbers, basically. So that sort of made it make more sense to me. But then I also liked that at some point, you know, towards the end of the film, it sort of circled back until, you know, the time where this, you know, Bill character is sitting on the porch with these neighbors kids like that's the present day and so we could like brought it up to the present day. I liked seeing his dynamic with the kids and I remember reading about the fact that he liked performing with children Mm -hmm. like as because of their like uh, sort of like artlessness Mm -hmm. and everything like you know and I think he did like have a good vibe. I like the dance he did with the little girl. Um, and he was much more believable as the old man in the framing than he was as the young man in the flashbacks. <laughs> so I have a question. Like they, they did all of these robust musical numbers at these, what seemed like very fancy clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of them were, but like the ones where they had all the like dancers and like the big sequences so who was the audience for those? Was that a white audience or was it a black audience? I literally wrote down the same question. I mean, it was more more like, who was the audience for this movie? <laughs> mm. But yes, yeah, yeah. I don't know what the answer is to like either variation on that question. Yeah, I was wondering that a lot because... I, I guess I was just trying to think about the time period and, like, would white audiences go to a movie where I don't think there were any white characters. No. So, yeah, like, would... And then the the shows they were putting on had a lot of minstrelsy. Mm-hmm. 
Which probably would have been for a white audience, right? Yeah, that's what I assumed, but I don't know enough. It made me want to look more into the history of, like, black ensemble troops Mm -hmm. and, you know, what their lives were like. Yeah, there was a class that I took in college that touched very briefly on minstrelsy in a way that was like, oh, everybody knows about minstrelsy, and so, like, it didn't have a lot of, like, context for, like, minstrel shows and minstrel minstrel skills, although it did make me realize that, like, there's that whole song in White Christmas about minstrel shows that I didn't really understand until a certain point. You know, I was thinking about that class that, you know, from, you know, a decade ago or whatever, and thinking about how, like, oh, yeah, like, that is, like, such a part of, like, theater history that I don't know very much about, especially when there's that scene where... I forget who the performers are, but it's two black actors who put blackface on over their their actual black faces to then go yeah. do, you know, that scene with the car where they're, like, obviously overplaying their dialect and they're, like, you know, they're obviously playing to a white audience. But, yeah, I thought the same thing. I was, like, you're, I, that was something I didn't know about, like, putting blackface on when you're a black actor. So, yeah, it's, it, it. It was curious, and they never really show the audience. I mean, the only scenes where you kind of see the audience are the more casual venues where it is a black audience. So mm-hmm. I love that dance that or Serena and Bill did in the beginning, where they like crouch down and like stop and like it was kind of like a dance of the time. I thought mm-hmm. it was really cool that everyone was doing in that dance hall, and then. Also, when they had everyone do the cakewalk, that was, like, not my understanding of what the cakewalk is. And then I was like, I need to go back and look into the cakewalk. I know. I, like, there were so many things where I was like, wait a second. (laughs) What did you think of, like, all the um, zoot suit stuff at the end with Cab Calloway? I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I, like... I, I feel like I maybe have never seen, like, I've seen obviously seen pictures of zoot suits and I, like, photographs of people wearing zoot suits and photographs of zoot suits not on people, you know, just, like, just on a mannequin. But, mm-hmm. like, to see someone, like, running around dancing in a zoot suit, I was like, that literally is, like, four extra suits of, like material it's amazing (laughs) yeah and the chain goes all the way down to the ground um (laughs) i thought he was great i think so cab and fats were the two ones where i was literally like i have chills just watching this (laughs) and and the nicholson brothers those were like the three ones that Mm -hmm. stuck out the most to me um what did you think of the central romance Mm -hmm. Uh, to me it seemed like sort of beside the point particularly, like, towards the end where he's all like, oh, well, you know, here's this picture of this house that I decided we should live in. And Selena's like, I don't want to live in it. Like, that's a great house, but it's not for us because we're going to, we're working all the time and traveling all the time. And he's like, but you're not going to work. You're going to stop working. She's like, that's not what I want. And he, like, gets snippy over it. it. was like, as a, like, 21st century woman, I was like, why does she have to stop working? Yeah. It's funny because I feel like that's the plot of so many movies <laughs> so many about movies. show business. Uh, Holiday Inn has the same kind of... The lead is dating the girl, like a showbiz girl, and he's in show business. And he was like, all I want to do is settle down in the country. And she's like, well, I'll get engaged to you, but I really just want to keep performing. 
And in this case, I thought it seemed very unrealistic how she was just like, I changed my mind. And like, no explanation. Like, all right. A little absence makes the heart grow fonder a little bit. Where she's like, sure, I haven't seen you in a little, little bit. So, yes, I'll stop working. Yeah, and I, I love that phrasing of like, you've worked long enough. Now it's time for you to stop stop working and pop out some babies. Yeah. You've worked long enough. <laughs> he, he says something like... I know. <laughs> exactly like that. It's awful. I did think that the women did have some agency, though, in this movie. They were, like, a little bit feistier than in some other movies we've watched. Like Feisty in um, a really good way. Yeah, in a good way. And, like, when Chick tries to tell uh, Serena that she can't, like, go out with Bill, she's just like, you only have any say over the act, and everything else I do what I want, bye. (laughs) And I was like, yeah. "Yeah." And I I liked also how the chorus girls went on strike because they weren't being paid. I was Mm -hmm. like, yeah, go on strike. Get your money. Get your money. Yeah, well, and there's the, the see that scene in Memphis where there's the woman who owns the like the bar. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so I loved that she was like, you know, she owns her own restaurant, and you know, is she can sell it if she wants to or not, you know, and she's in charge of the band that's full of men, and she can you know sell them or not, like sell the band or not. I love that. Yeah, I love that too. I loved her voice so much. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it just made me be like, I should listen to nothing but this music from now on. You know what's a shame, though? Like, I, so the Catherine Dunham scene with, like, her dance troupe, I, like, appreciated that she was obviously very technically talented and all of that, but I really didn't enjoy that dance very much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't ever enjoy watching dance, so I was like, well, okay. I mean, secondary to that... The fact that this was a stage production and they zoom into like a window scene and then there's a weird dance. I was like, what? This isn't, that's not what happens in theater. You can't zoom in on something that's happening like somewhere else. You have to suspend your disbelief, Emily. (laughs) That was the part where I was like, the whole rest of the movie was like fairly realistic. And now I'm like, what's happening? But, um, but yeah, I... Of, of, I mean, there were a lot of talented dancers in this, and, like, she is, like, a huge name, at, and as we found out, but, like, I enjoyed that the least. Like, I loved all the tap dance numbers mm-hmm. with Bill Robinson. I loved the Nicholson Brothers. Mm-hmm. Like, I liked a lot of the big ensemble dances, but, like, that one I was kind of like, oh, this is a little too abstract for me. Yeah, yeah. But, like you said, totally, like, technically interesting to watch. Yes, for sure. It reminded me a little bit, and, like, this is way earlier than the style of when they did, like, the dream ballets and stuff. Think about it as a, uh, as a dream, Emily. And then it'll be okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Bill's friend who never had any money and lied to everyone? I don't know. I felt like that was a pretty, like, stereotypical character or archetypal character. Like, of course he has this friend. He's, like, the third... There were three buddies, you know, in the army. One of them is the main character. One of them is the, has apparently, I guess we're supposed to assume that he passed away in the war, and but he has this, you know, kid sister that, you know, turns out to be this beautiful woman. And then there's the third one who's like the one who can't find success and can't make yeah. any money. The ne'er-do-well. Yeah, the ne'er-do-well. 
The scene where they conspire to lie to the chorus girls and get them to work for no money bothered me a lot. Yeah, he was not a he was not a character that inspired any confidence. Although it like showed a lot about uh, Lena Horne's character that she just you know felt totally comfortable like giving him a hard time and teasing him about his near do wellness. Yeah, I I actually thought that. Her acting was really good considering that she was like a singer first Mm -hmm. because she had a lot of warmth and you Mm -hmm. really, I felt like I believed her when she was like, oh, you're my brother's friends. Like, I feel kindly towards you. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I thought she was, she was really good. I thought of the actors in the movie, she was probably the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally I totally agree. She definitely had a different kind of stage presence that was, like, like hard to look away from in the best way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? Uh, are you ready to talk fashion? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> there, there's there's a certain item that I really want to talk about. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, it is Lena Horne's hat in the first shot where you see her that oh, has like yeah. the giant mm-hmm. hair sticking out in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what did you think about that? <laughs> uh, I hated it, but like, <laughs> I mean, everything looked good on her. Like, she looked wonderful, but... I was like, is that horse hair? Like, what is that? Mm-hmm. I just kept trying to figure out what it was. I'm trying to find a picture of it as we're talking about it, because I don't, like... Oh, found it. Yeah, what is that? That's, like... That is a statement hat. I mean, as we discussed, I loved all the zoot suits. Okay. I thought they were great. Um, I thought that Lena's stormy weather dress was really beautiful, too, mm-hmm. with the, like, sweetheart neckline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that was the dress that had all of the fringe on it too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was just like an incredible ensemble that she just like pulled off and yeah, also hard to look away from in the best way. This is not fashion, but I thought it was interesting <laughs> in the movie how you know, there was like tension between her and Bill because she was very ambitious and he seemed like he was more content, like as long as he Mm-hmm was secure he was fine um and it almost felt like there was like a class difference like Mm -hmm. she her her clothing made her appear like very posh Mm -hmm. and he even after he got famous didn't you know he looked much more like down to earth and it seemed like she cared not at all like i think that was something that struck me about this movie is that all the movies that we've watched that are primarily about white people are very concerned about class and i like Mm -hmm. didn't feel that in this Mm -hmm. movie I mean, yeah. I guess except for Chick saying, like, oh, I don't want you hanging out in those low joints. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of a villain, so it was, like, you know, not, like, a sense. But other than that, like, they were in everything from just, like, you know, like, hanging out in bars to, like, these fancy um, music halls. And nobody seemed to be, like, looking askance at anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, it was kind of refreshing. I get sick of being like, these rich people are dumb. Like, <laughs> the other movies we watch. <laughs> <laughs> these, 
these people who have become rich seem like normal human beings. <laughs> we all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Should we talk about social justice? Yes. I don't even really know where to begin with that topic in this yeah, movie. I don't know. <laughs> you start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know. I like. I had to keep reminding myself that it like the beginning of it is set right after World War One. Obviously, white GIs who are coming back who likely had very different opportunities um, and support systems for like reintegrating back into like you know civilian society. Whereas these two former military guys come back and they're like, well, I, you know, I guess we have to find jobs now and we have to do it on our own. That struck me as something that was related to social justice. You know, some of the stuff that, you know, Chick's attitude towards the, you know, Gabe and Bill, I think relates to like the general class thing that you were talking about earlier. And then you all, you also mentioned the, um, the women workers went on strike, which held up the, you know, labor work justice for workers yeah i mean you're right i didn't even think about that that there's even a a labor Mm -hmm. vibe to this movie and even when the when um bill's friend comes in and pretends like he's his agent and Mm -hmm. then he's like let me see a sample of this they work so hard they're just like all right let me go into this like incredibly difficult and complex dance routine on the spot just because you said do it and 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 they're all amazing and I I think it just illustrates what it's like to work in show business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with everything that you said. I'm still curious about like racial aspects of being a black performer mm-hmm. in this time, like if they were performing for white audiences, but the film didn't really engage with that. But it did make me curious to yeah. find out more. Yeah, like a lot of the songs they did were very much like you know mocking Aboriginal people mm-hmm. or like the, you know the chorus girls are dressed like zebras. Like there's a lot of really offensive stuff in it mm-hmm. that I feel like probably like wasn't if these performers' first choice of like the yeah this is like what we want to do. Mm-hmm. It was probably like this is what audiences want. So. Right, this Um, is what the producers, the white producers, will let us get away with. Yeah, totally, so... Yeah, and I agree with you, too, that, like, I don't know that this movie answered a lot of the questions that I had, but it definitely, like, made me think about things that I just sort of took for granted in movies that we've seen previously or never thought about. Yeah, normally the movies that we have watched, you know, have predominantly white casts, and you don't have to think about race whereas these this movie you know made me think oh how how would it have been different for these actors yeah i think even in um what we were talking about before we got into like the meat of the film the fact that it was this unusual for a movie like this to even exist Mm -hmm. and like you look at all of the amazing talent in this movie and you're like if this is just in this movie think of how much more just never even Mm-hmm. was seen yeah like the, this talent was here and no one you know no one took advantage of it in a way that like preserved it and shared it with the wider world i've been living my own life making my own decisions for a long while now it's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again 
Well, on that note, let's talk about gender. <laughs> Do you um, think it passes the Bechdel test? Uh, I mean, there is that scene about, you know, the dancers who are trying to get their fair pay. So I guess on a technicality, it passes the Bechdel test. But, you know, and there's the restaurant owner who talks to Lena Horne's character. So I guess technically it does. Yeah, I think in the very beginning, too, one of the characters has a date who meets... Lena Horne's character. Oh, right. And they talk. So, I mean, mm. like, there there definitely are women who talk to one another, not just about relationships in this movie, but the women are not the focus of the movie, really. Mm-hmm. So, I guess it passes, but I don't think it's, like... It's sort of a mixed bag. Like, you have some good feminist things happening and then you have like i'm giving everything up to move to this house bye (laughs) right i think that actually kind of trumps everything else (laughs) yeah i was really hoping there would be some kind of resolute and obviously this is like 21st century emily thinking this but i was like i want to see a resolution where he's like look i love you and i want to marry you and if you don't want to live in a house and give up your career that's fine like let's live this way and we could still be together yeah 21st century (laughs) (laughs) um anyway but based on like all the bios we've done it sounds like even that lifestyle rarely worked out for people (laughs) because everyone's married like five times in my bio yeah except for paul newman and joanne woodward yeah oh i still keep talking about him to everyone (laughs) seems totally appropriate yeah uh so what rating would you give this movie hill maybe a four because at some point i was like oh there's a lot of music in this movie but we also have to listen to dialogue and then i was like oh there's a lot of music in this movie and no dialogue so it's basically just music (laughs) and you know there was enough there were enough songs that i recognized and enough like performers that i recognized that i was like okay this is cool this is like like familiar enough but i also get to learn something too and learn about something too so i liked that so yeah so four yeah what about you i was gonna give it a four but now I think I'm going to bump it up to a four and a quarter. Okay. Just because of the Nicholson Brothers dance scene. <laughs> because it was so good. And, I mean, I agree with you that, like, you know, there's there's very little dialogue. There's almost no plot. You're basically just, it's like watching music videos, kind <laughs> of, and, like, dance performances. But they're so good that it is 100% worth watching. Um <laughs> I would rewatch, like, I don't know if I would rewatch it, like, as a straight through, but I would rewatch a lot of these performances. Yeah, and I would um, totally, like, watch it to listen to it, to just, like, get in the groove with it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is the kind of movie that should be taught in film classes, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm glad we, I'm glad we watched it. I didn't, like, I kind of went in without expectations, and I was like, what? People are jumping into splits, and, like, Fats Waller's eyebrows are going crazy, <laughs> and, like, this is just awesome. <laughs> Um, so what's our next movie, Hill? We're taking a slightly different tack and watching the movie Shanghai Express with Marlena Dietrich and Anna Mae Wong. Ooh, very exciting. I look forward to it. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow the Screen Sirens on Twitter at the Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening.
After all, tomorrow is another day.